Good morning. He is faithful and sufficient, and uh, he is doing a good work, and uh, that work continues this morning as we get into the Word. Um, just as an aside, I just want it so I don't forget it, um, earlier when Chad mentioned that we're going to be praying at the end of the service, and they showed a text number on the screen. That's actually for prayer Tuesdays. So you're going to have a different text number this morning, but you'll just be texting us real time, and we'll just be praying for those requests as we get them. So we'll give you that number uh, after we finish up in Hebrews. So um, I've had kind of a mixed experience as we've been going through Hebrews, and I've heard from some of you that I think you've had a similar experience. Um, on the one hand, incredibly encouraging, right? Just all these reassurances of God's faithfulness and sufficiency and the promises of God and all that. And at the same time, has it not been incredibly challenging? Feeling like there is this, there is this Christian life that is, it seems like it's way, way beyond much of what I have experienced and that's, that's challenging, it's convicting, um, and, and it makes me want to just keep growing and, and striving after that. Um, as we've been making our way through the text, I feel like we've been getting these priceless treasures that we can and will apply over the course of our lives for the rest of our lives, and that will bring about amazing change. It actually already has but in each of us individually, but even us as a church. Like we can be a different church having gone through this amazing letter. And that's the aim of scripture. That, that's why God gave that to us. It wasn't just so that we could have a better life now. It was truly to lead us to abundant life and eternal life. That was the heart of God for his word. I came across a great Uh, statement by Charles Spurgeon. He says this, the word of God will be to you a bulwark and a high tower, a castle of defense against the foe. Oh, see to it that the word of God is in you, in your very soul, permeating your thoughts and so operating upon your outward life that all may know you to be a true Bible Christian, for they perceive it in your words and your deeds. We want to be marked by God's word. That's why we do this every Sunday, inviting him to speak to us and teach us and change us. Uh, One of the things I wanted to do this morning, and I felt like this text really lent itself to this purpose, is kind of walk us through just Bible study methods. You know, when you sit down with your Bible and you're reading it, uh, we should read it devotionally, just like, hey, this is God's love letter to me. That's certainly one way that we come to the Word. But we need to study it as well. It is a 2,000 and plus year old document. So there's no way that you and I just automatically get everything that's there. That was a different time, a different season, a different era of history. And so we study it. And here's how we study it. There's a process. 
the first thing we want to understand is, what did the original author intend for his audience to get? Original context. And then out of that, as we understand that effectively, then we start to think about, well, what's a timeless truth that wouldn't only apply to the original audience, but it would apply to me? And it will also apply to somebody a thousand years from now. What is that timeless truth that I need to take away from this text, just like everybody else does? And then finally, if we don't apply this to our lives, we'll never change. We might know more, but we won't truly be changed by God's word as it intended. So we want to ask the question, how do I apply this timeless truth to my life today and going forward? So we're actually going to follow that pattern as we go through this text this morning. We're in Hebrews 10. We're going to be going verses 1 through 18, and we're wrapping up a larger segment that began all the way back in chapter 7, verse 1. And this whole section has been about the ministry of our great high priest, Jesus. So we're wrapping that up today. Next week, um, G, uh, Jeff, I don't know why I do that. You're just so much like Jesus. I want to call you Jesus all the time. Um, next week, Jeff is going to take us through a transitional passage. It's actually the final warning passage of Hebrews. And then we'll get to Easter, and then we'll hit chapter 11. I can't wait to get there. But as we look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, it's in four sections, verses 1 through 4, 5 through 10, 11 through 14, and 15 through 18. And what I'm going to do this morning is for each of those sections, I'm going to give you a summary statement. Then we're going to look at kind of the, the general nature of that text. We're going to identify a timeless truth that we can take from that text, and then we're going to think about applying that to our lives, life application, all right? So Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, here's your summary statement. It's in your notes. Old covenant sacrifices reminded of sins but could never remove them. If you've been with us, that's probably a very familiar idea. He's been saying this over and over again as we've been learning about the Old Testament covenant sacrifices, we have been learning that they didn't necessarily serve the function that most people might have expected. They did not cover sin. They actually exposed sin. That was their purpose, God-ordained purpose. Look at verse 1. For since the law, that's the old covenant instructions that God gave his people, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible, maybe underline this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So as we try to put that that 
four verses into a summary statement, we would say old covenant sacrifices, that's what it's talking about, reminded of sins, but could never remove them. The law in all of its rituals served to expose humanity's curse, universal, applies to everybody, no exceptions, all have sinned. But those sacrifices and the law that demanded them could not lift sin's consequences. There had to be an adequate sacrifice. We'll look at that in a minute. The law demanded works, but offered no lasting compensation. Think of it this way. What if you had a job that you were required to do every single day and you never got paid? And the reason that you never got paid was because you were so indebted, it was an infinite debt. So all of the compensation, so to speak, of your work goes against a debt that you'll never be able to pay back. How does that feel? Kind of heavy, doesn't it? Kind of hopeless. And if you were in that situation, I wonder if you wouldn't just naturally go to your employer and say, I wonder, is there any possibility that you could forgive my debt? And if you would, I would keep working, but not so that I could get paid to pay off my debt. I would do it out of gratitude because my debt had been forgiven. That is the gospel. That is what God has done with our sin debt. And if you think of works as something that you can do to pay off that debt, you're hopeless. You don't have a chance. It is so far beyond any capability that you have. You will work for the rest of your life and still be in debt for all of eternity. But you can ask for your, quote, employer to forgive your debt. And then you can spend the rest of your life working not to gain that gift, but to celebrate it. That's what we have available to us. So the law is fulfilled. It had a purpose. And that purpose is accomplished when it destroys a person's self-reliant faith in themselves. If the law can do that, what a sweet gift. Because then you ask for the law giver to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Romans 3.20 says this, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here's the timeless truth that I took away from this section. Works don't work for taking away sins. They just don't. And you can say that to yourself again and again and again because you need to hear it again and again and again. Works don't work for taking away sins. God has a different solution and as I just mentioned, good works are the result of a life released from the penalty and power of sin, not the cause. 
Things like kindness and generosity, morality, compassion, discipline, self-sacrifice. Those are all good things, right? Wonderful things. Not a single one of them can take away your sin. Not one. But if those things are coming out of your life as a result of having been forgiven by God, it's a beautiful, beautiful statement to the goodness of God. Here's a good life application question that Paul asked the Galatians. You can read this at another point. Galatians 3, 2 through 3. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. They would have said, well, of course, we received it by faith. We didn't do anything to get the Spirit. And then he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No. It's all the same. It's all by God's Spirit. It's all by His grace and goodness, our expression of faith. So from from an application standpoint, if works don't work to take away sin, then works don't work to make me acceptable to God even after I have trusted in Him. It's by grace through faith. I'm trusting in Him and responding to His goodness toward me. Now, in that passage, it it makes a reference to being made perfect, and that perfection isn't sinless perfection. It's actually perfect acceptance before the Father. That is what is accomplished in our lives. And we're able to do good works because the ultimate good work has been done first in us. The next section leads us to the perfect work of Christ. It's working perfectly in us. But Hebrews 10, 5 through 10 basically conveys this idea. Christ did what God desired perfectly, securing our salvation. Christ did what God desired perfectly, securing our salvation. Look at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said... Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. All of those were prescribed in the Old Testament law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He's referring to the covenant. Verse 10, And by that will, by the Father's will, that Jesus followed perfectly, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ for all. Now this is another example of the writer of Hebrews using an Old Testament text And it's interesting to me, he says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then quotes Psalm 40. 
So who wrote Psalm 40? King David. So Jesus is quoting something that David wrote hundreds of years earlier, and he's saying, that's what I said. So it applied to David, and it applied to Jesus, most importantly. And he's telling us here that God did not desire all of the sacrifices that were required by Israel. Now, that's a little confusing, isn't it? Here's what he's saying. God certainly required those sacrifices. He commanded them and expected them to be performed. But as we have been learning, the intent of the sacrifices wasn't to cover sin. It was to remind Israel of their sin so that they would reach out to God for forgiveness. So that he would provide a perfect sacrifice. And who is that perfect sacrifice? Well, it's the great high priest, Jesus, who offers himself. What we're learning here is that that sacrifice was God's will all along. And by Jesus doing that, he perfectly obeyed the will of the Father. That was the plan. And when Jesus came, he had an option. He could have said, yeah, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. They can take care of themselves. But instead, because of his great love for you and for me, he offered himself in perfect obedience to the will, to the plan of the Father. So the timeless truth we get from this, obviously he's instructing us around sacrifices and the sacrificial system. Our timeless truth is that sin-wrecked lives are renovated not by sacrifice, but by grace through faith in Christ's perfect obedience to God's will. Sin-wrecked lives are renovated by grace through faith in Christ's perfect obedience to God's will. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Are you guys picking up on a theme here? Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The writer of Hebrews here uses the word sanctified to reference salvation. He uses it in verse 10, and he's going to use it again in verse 14. So he talks about those who have been sanctified, and then in verse 14, those who are being sanctified. Both of those references are just a different way to speak of those who are saved. And you could say those who have been saved and those who are being saved. Here's what he means by that. It's not that you sort of got saved back then and you are being saved and, and there's a big question mark around that. It's that salvation is a very vast thing that comes into your life. You've probably heard us talk about justification, sanctification, and glorification. So you have been saved as you have been justified, made right with God, completely forgiven, made righteous before him. You, have, you are being sanctified, 
which is a progressive thing. God is at work in your life, conforming him to your image, and then you will be glorified. There will be a day when you will be completely made new, nothing like from a spiritual perspective than you are today. All glory to God in that. So he's just saying that this salvation that has been secured by Christ through his obedience and our faith in that, that saved us and is saving us. It's a process of being set apart and progressively transformed in ways that are consistent with the new condition that God has given you in Christ. That is the outcome of Christ's perfect obedience to God's will. So here's the life application question. We're told here that God's at work in you. God's at work in me. So I got to ask, are you cooperating with the transformational work of God in your life? It's not as if God kind of set you in motion and stepped back and said, hey, good luck. I hope this goes good for you. I'll see you in heaven. No, he is actively working to change us. And we are either cooperating with that work or not in any given moment. And so what a great question for us just to keep asking day in and day out. Am I allowing God to do everything that he wants to do in and through me? And if I am, you're going to see fruit. You're going to see a changed life. Not because I'm just a better Christian than many others. It's going to be because I have just allowed God to do as he pleases with me. He can do that work because Jesus, our great high priest, obeyed perfectly. Now, we have been getting the idea, certainly Jesus said it himself on the cross, but his sacrificial work is finished. And what that means, it it has satisfied the wrath of God. There is no more payment needed to cover sin, but... Its ultimate effect on all of creation has not yet been realized. So when we get to uh, verses 11 through 14, we're given the idea that Christ seems to be waiting for something. Look at uh, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The summary statement is this. Christ is waiting for his finished work to be fully realized. Now, he has done everything for you that needs to be done in order to make you acceptable to God. But is there anybody in here that is sinless? Anybody in here that you just have everything all together? No struggles, no flaws, no doubts, 
Nothing like you're good. Is there anybody? Didn't think so. Me neither. But before God, the work's done. And all that he is doing now is just aligning you more and more and more and more with what is true about you from his perspective. He sees you as righteous in the blood of Christ. Now, despite that, there is this work that isn't finished. And he starts by using the illustration of those Levitical priests. Remember we talked about we had the tabernacle and the priests go in daily to offer sacrifices um, in the first section, the holy place. And then once a year, the, the great high priest goes into the holy of holies uh, and offers a sacrifice to cover sin for that year, right? Remember all of that. And they keep going back again and again and again and again, signaling that that work is not finished, that that work was incomplete. So what we have here then is that's the illustration of there being a process for there be a, being a waiting. Christ came, offered a perfect sacrifice. We're told that he went and sat down next to the Father Notice the contrast of standing priests and a seated Savior. That seated Savior tells us the work is done, but he's waiting. Well, what's he waiting for? He is waiting for the full expression of his good work to be expressed in all of creation. And as long as there is sin and death in this world, then that work has not been fully realized. That is what he's waiting for. And it will happen in perfect alignment with the will of the Father. He has a plan. He has a day. He has a time when that work will be fully realized. Christ will come. He will make all things new. There will be no evidence of sin anywhere or death anywhere in all of creation. Christ is waiting for that. And he's glad to wait. Here's why. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the longer Christ waits, the more sinners will be made right with God and spend eternity with him in God's presence. Now, here's a question. Does the thought of God waiting for anything strike you as odd? It did me. Like, why would God, who is perfect and all-powerful, he can have anything he wants anytime he wants it, why would he ever wait for anything? Why wouldn't he just get it right when he thinks about it? It is this beautiful picture of patience. And so that's our timeless truth. It's a phrase you've heard probably most of your life, but patience is a virtue. And we know that because God himself is exercising patience with us while accomplishing his purposes. Now, patience as it relates to us is both an effect 
and an endeavor. Um, let me define patience first. That is literally to remain, to stand one's ground, to hold out, to endure, to wait. It is the idea of forbearance. And I, as I looked at that definition, there's nothing about that that is convenient or comfortable. It's not the easy life. But there is a willingness there to stay under whatever weight uh, is applied. In the New Testament, waiting well is walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we have been given. That's another way that you can talk about it. So here's the effect. And kind of, again, step aside, Bible study methods. When, when Jeff and I give you cross-references to other places in Scripture, that's part of what we do to make sure that we're interpreting any given text correctly. It needs to be in alignment with the rest of the Bible. So the Bible interprets the Bible. So here's the effect of God's kindness toward us and an expression of patience. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. This is the fruit of the Spirit... And guess what's listed as part of the fruit of the Spirit? Patience. That means that if you have the Holy Spirit in you, He is at work, and guess what He's producing in you? Not because you are really working at it. He's actually just he's cultivating it in you. He's making you patient. He's making you willing to wait with Jesus. For the full expression of his finished work to be exercised in our broken world. Now, having said that, remember, patience isn't just an effect. It is an endeavor. We're actually called to do it. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and constant in prayer. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. That's not just a feeling. Love, when you really love well, enabled by God, it's patient. You're willing to wait on the flaws and struggles and imperfections of everyone around you because God has done that and is doing that with you. Love is patient. First Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers... And these were to the leaders of the church. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. That just means that we leave room for God's timetable in each of our lives. It's not a race. There's no comparison. I want to be glad about whatever God is doing in your life and leave room for that. Celebrate that and call you to more. And I want you to do that for me. Our seated high priest is good reason to wait well. And as we get to the end of our passage in verses 15, 18, we find more motivation to wait well. Here's the summary statement for this last section. The Holy Spirit prophetically links God's commitment to illumination 
and forgiveness. The Holy Spirit prophetically links God's commitment to illumination and forgiveness. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And the first question we ought to ask is, so, so who else bore witness? Well, Jesus did, right? And now the Holy Spirit is, after saying, verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, this is a very interesting passage. It sort of operates in the same way that that Psalm 40 passage did when Jesus was said to be quoting that in reference to himself. So here we're told that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness of these truths, and he's quoting Jeremiah 31. Now, let's think about this. So the Holy Spirit inspired the prophet Jeremiah to record these words that God spoke to him. Now we're in the book of Hebrews, and we're told that the Holy Spirit um, prompted the writer of Hebrews to quote Jeremiah 31 as it relates to this audience. And because this book wasn't just for the first century Christians, it's for us as well. The Holy Spirit is testifying to us that he is doing a work that God promised to do all the way back in the days of Jeremiah. And that was to write his word on your heart and mind, mine as well, which means that it isn't just this book out here on the podium it's not just an inspirational verse I might catch on Facebook. God's very word is in me, reminding me of what is true in contrast to the falsehood of the world so that I might live as God intends day in and day out. He also goes on to say that not only has he put God's word on our hearts, but he remembers our sin no more. Now, how does God do that? Because I thought he knew everything all of the time. Omniscient. So that, that word forgotten can't mean that God's like, uh, well, did they sin? I just, I'm not sure I quite remember. No, it means that he chooses to see our sin as if it never happened and yet fully aware that it did and what it cost to cover it. Here's how the psalmist refers to that. Psalm 103. Man, these are sweet words. You ought to read these every day. Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Aren't you thankful? Nor repay us according to our iniquities. Here's what forgotten means. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's what it means for God to forget our sins. 
And they are only forgotten because of Christ's perfect obedience, his perfect sacrifice. So our timeless truth is that sin that is atoned for is sin that is forgotten, period. Nothing else needed or added. And in light of this amazing goodness that I just read about in Psalm 103, and we're being reminded of in Hebrews, it seems fitting that Christ's followers would wait well with Jesus for God to finish the effects of that sacrifice. Don't you think? So let me tell you how to wait well. This is our big so what for this passage and really for this whole section of Hebrews. The best way to wait well is to worship God with your life. Not just with a minute, not just with a day, not just at work, not just at home, not just on Sundays, but worship God with all of your life. And that's exactly what Paul told the Romans to do. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. We've gotten a a better glimpse of those mercies this morning. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here's the picture. We've been talking about sacrifice this morning, right? The sacrificial system, which couldn't cover sin, and a perfect sacrifice, which covered all sin and made people acceptable to God. So in light of all of that, how do I wait well in a broken and sin-wrecked world? I offer myself... As a living sacrifice for whatever God wants with me. And I do that every day. I start in the morning and I just say, Lord, I am yours. And he uses a living sacrifice. So these folks would have just immediately again gone to the sacrificial system. It's a picture. And they would have seen a sacrifice placed before God and consumed by fire. Your life and mine should be consumed by God. And when he does that, it is for our good and his glory every time, without exception. So life is hard. All of us are struggling in one way or another, and we must wait with Jesus. How do we do that? Worship God with all of our life. Not just on a Sunday morning, not just on a periodic devotional day, but with everything. Everything that you are, everything that you have, offer it to him as a living sacrifice. And he will do a beautiful, beautiful work. I want to go back to Spurgeon's words. See to it that the word of God is in you, in your very soul, permeating your thoughts and so operating upon your outward life that all may know you to be a true Bible Christian.
So, as a so what, how might you worship God with your life? Beginning right now, today, it maybe today's a great breakthrough for you. Maybe it's a new day. Ask God to show you how you might apply this passage to your life today. And then we'll begin praying in just a moment. The elders want to go ahead and make their way to the stage. And Father in heaven, so encouraged, as I said at the beginning, encouraged and challenged, so grateful for the finished work of Christ on our behalf, and challenged by the need to wait well. Lord, help me to do that. Help us to do that. By faith, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, not to gain your acceptance, but because we are. Would you do a good work in us and through us as we wait on you? We wait with Jesus for his perfect work to be realized in all of creation. We pray that in his name.